HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network on tour, broadcasting live at Slow Food Nations in Denver. I'm Hannah Forden, the program manager at Heritage Radio Network. We have come all the way from Brooklyn to talk to some of the most exciting people in the food world. Um, And I'm really excited to speak with our next guest. But first up, I want to thank our sponsors for making our coverage uh, and trip out here possible. Uh, And those are our friends at the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts, Hearst Ranch, and the Big Green Egg, who are also here at Slow Food Nations. Go say hello to them. They're barbecuing lots of yummy things. Um, and I am super excited to introduce to you our next guest, Jennifer Holmes of Hanny Bee Company. Is it Hanny? Is it Hani? That's a really good question, it's an actually. A, so I wasn't... I say Hani, you say Hanny. I mean... Right. Well, like, I'm Hannah or Hannah or Hannah if you're, like, really deep in Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> you got to be flexible, right? I'm flexible. Awesome. So um, to paint a picture for those of you tuning in from uh, outside of Denver, Jennifer is decked out in like bee uh, accessories. She's got an amazing bee on a bicycle t-shirt. She's got a bee uh, tattoos. She's got an awesome queen bee hat. So Jennifer, tell me, how did you find your way into beekeeping? What is the origin story? I love that question. A lot of people ask that question. Um, I actually had no clue I would be a beekeeper as a young adult. Um, I had many different occupations, wore many different hats. Um, (laughs) But this one's the best hat, I think. This is my favorite hat, honestly. Um, You know, I always had sort of a a propensity towards nature and sustainability and just overall good general social um, activity, which really kind of emulates honeybees and pollinators. So um, it started with a lesson with a commercial beekeeper, which my dear husband got for me on my birthday about 15 years ago. Um, And it was magical, deep in the southern part of the United States in Florida, in some extremely natural settings, like 30 acres of just dryness, um, as far as like, you know, the heat. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I kept some bees for uh, this gentleman for quite some time and did any, any job that they really wanted me to do that was difficult for them. And I fell in love with honeybees like immediately. So so cool. No turning back. Um, so you're based in Florida. Um, and I'm curious how uh, your, your bees are, are free roaming, right? They're, they go and they feed off of 
any available um, nectar. And I'm curious, what are the flavors of the plant life in Florida that um, comes through in the honey? Awesome. So they, they are free roaming, but only to a certain degree. Okay. I mean, honeybees in particular usually can only fly a couple miles in one direction. So the radius is decent. It's a good 20 to 30 mile radius um, per colony. And when you think of a colony, think of a family. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you might see honeybees and they all look alike to you, but they literally have their own um, family as far as like genetics, odor. Um, they know their location. So they're really keyed in. If they leave the hive in search of that delicious nectar, they know exactly how to get back to where they were, and they can explain to the rest of their family where that reward is. The flavors in Florida are really unique. I mean, as far as traveling the world, I make it a point to learn what honey varieties are available everywhere. I, I would consider myself sort of a honey addict. I was going to say expert, but I'll just use the word addict because um, it, it, sh- yeah. it shouldn't have a negative connotation, the word addict. I mean, who? it's not a bad thing to be addicted to honey, is it? No, I don't think honey does anything bad, right? So of all the honeys in the world, which there are many, Florida really boasts some special ones. And we've been um, sharing them since we got here at Slow Food Nations this weekend. And it's been really exciting for me, too, because I got a chance to share some honeys with a local beekeeper, um, Bee Squared Apiaries is here also. Mm-hmm. Um, and Beth conducted a honey tasting here, which was sold out. Um, people love really tasting honeys and getting to know what their local terroir is. Um, so one of my favorites from Florida is Sal Palmetto. Ooh. It's a native plant. So it doesn't really um, put any major stressors on the environment. As a matter of fact, it's a beneficial thing to have around. It doesn't require any intervention from humans. Uh, It just grows natively and naturally among lots of pine trees, um, produces copious amounts of delicious nectar to attract pollinators, um, and in fact then makes a delicious honey. Um, And we have some here. Hopefully you can get a break to come to some. Ooh, I'd love to. Um, Orange Blossom, another favorite among many. Um, But I will say, especially with the type of work that I've been doing to sort of help and protect pollinators, Orange Blossom honey um, is one that I'm concerned about because it's a forced crop and there are quite a bit of chemicals used to produce most of the oranges that are grown here in the continental U.S. Mm -hmm. So that kind of opens up a little can of worms that I'm sure we're going to dive into a little bit more. But those are two real common um, Florida honeys. Third one, um, I talked to Kat just before we got on air um, about the Panhandle region of Florida, um, which is special and unique. And one of the most popular honeys is Tupelo. Mm. That region of the Panhandle um, boasts these trees that are pretty old and they like to keep their roots in the water. Um, and it's iffy every year if it's even going to make a crop of honey. But when you get it, it's it's amazing. That's my mouth is watering. Um, so piggybacking on what you were talking about with um, pesticides, um, what sort of impact does quote unquote conventional farming have on pollinators? A huge one. At this point, it's almost immeasurable. There's very little um, work done in the form of national or local policy to study it. It's really coming down to citizens and grassroots efforts like Slow Food, which is already so amazing at empowering and motivating and organizing and gathering people together for common interests. Um, But if I was to give you a professional opinion, which I can give you because I spend my day-to-day as a professional beekeeper, I would tell you that in a very short window, just the last few years, I've seen a very deleterious uh, decline in honeybees' ability to survive and adapt, where before, with little intervention, they thrived pretty well. Um, We pride ourselves in our day-to-day practice of beekeeping, and my husband is a beekeeper too. 
which is pretty darn amazing, um, to keep our bees as naturally as possible. We have now found that it's almost difficult to do that and still produce a reasonable amount of honey. So we're, just like other farmers, sort of pressed to present our food as something of value um, that shouldn't be gulped, that should be savored and really like cherished and treasured, and it's not finite. Those resources are all starting to show us that um, they're really dependent on us to make some drastic shifts. Um, pesticides is a huge word. Um, that encompasses like a major issue with almost everything on the planet. But if I was to encourage people to do one thing, it would be to reduce, to be more aware of pesticide use, especially as an individual citizen at their home, mm -hmm. because we worry about large pesticide use in food crops, but honestly the individuals are using pesticides at home that have um, very little regulatory support. So there's a label on the can or on the package they know what they're supposed to do, but um, I don't know about you, but I think as Americans we have a reputation, don't anybody get mad at me for this, um, that they need more in order to achieve the result. Um, so they think if I need this much to do it, I might as well throw a little more down because that's going to make it even more effective. Um, and we don't know the effects of that and or the combinations. You, when pesticides are used either um, industrially or by a citizen at home, or by a company that comes to say spray your lawn for weeds, they can only basically pay attention to the label and the label is set up by the company and the governing body that regulates pesticides. Um, there's nothing that shows how those pesticides are gonna interact with one another, mm -hmm. whether one is systemic or instantly um, utilized to control a pest or a weed. Um, so we really don't have any major data. If studies are done on pollinators with pesticides, they're usually done by the companies that own the pesticide company for one um, and they usually pay the researcher that does the study um, and for two the pesticide usually has to show and I shouldn't just use the word pesticide Sorry. I have to digress it should be pesticide herbicide fungicide any other side um, they have to show um, these companies have to show an immediate lethal reaction to a pollinator in order for there to be some stricter labeling requirements and or for there to be um, more regulation on not being used and the amount that it's applied, but there's absolutely no data to support the combinations of all of them. So I would encourage people to be more aware of that. Mm. The education is definitely key. Um, so that's something we can all do to help others get to know how they could support pollinators. Absolutely, and I'd love to keep talking about the work that you do um, in education. I know you work with the University of Florida Bee Colleges, um, and you also were talking earlier about slow bees. Um, so tell me a little bit about the work you're doing to educate um, uh, new uh, beekeepers and also just the community at large. Sure. I, I'm very fortunate. I live in an area where we have a university that has a master beekeeper program. Awesome. Um, they have a master gardener program, and both programs are very well um, put together. I mean, if you're not able to get a college degree or spend some time um, going for a degree in a subject that you're very interested in, this is, this is one avenue that people can take. Um, with that said, there's also state and local beekeeping organizations. Mm -hmm. I happen to sit on a board of a state beekeeping organization that's 99 years old. So wow. I'm currently serving as president, and one of the active roles of this organization over the years is to make sure that there is an apiary division among the agriculture sector of our state. All the policy, all the laws that are written to enable people to have bees um, and not it not be illegal is, has all been done outside of the regulatory body because their hands are tied as to what they can and can't do. So it takes a nonprofit organization and some volunteers to come in 
Um, so that's one thing that I found my way into when originally I started beekeeping, the first educational opportunities I found were the Master Beekeeper Program, yeah. and that gave me the opportunity to go to Bee College as an instructor, which I get to do next week after I come down from this amazing uh, event that I'm here right now partaking in. Um, and then also um, on a day-to-day -day basis, if I have the opportunity, I do spend time educating people one-on-one -on, -one on taking care of pollinators. That's awesome. Um, let's talk about slow bees. Slow bees. I'm so excited about slow bees. Tell me everything. So have you been to Terra Madre yet? I have not. Okay. I really want to go. Okay, you have to go. Okay. Every year try to go until that magic opportunity happens. I had the good fortune of doing that last year. Um, I feel like this is an awesome example of Terra Madre here. Um, anyone that ever has the opportunity to go to a Slow Food Nations or a Terra Madre in Italy, uh, really just make it happen. So what happened is Carlo Petrini, who is very eloquent and able to reach right into your heart and sort of squeeze it and make you feel like you have to go do something very drastic, used words like, you know, take this home with you, create a terra madre, make slow foods in U.S. a terra madre. Um, and as a delegate for um, honeybees and pollinators, I interacted with people from all over the world. I mean, wow, mind blown. And I came home and I started reaching out to other beekeepers that had been delegates in the past to say, has anyone worked on a slow bees community? So there are all these great communities already happening within the slow food organization. I didn't even know what it would take to have a slow bees community. I just knew that I wanted to see it happen. So I was lucky enough to find some people that had had those conversations all the way back in 2006, all the way till today. And they took the time to get involved with Slow Food International to fill out the proper paperwork and make it a reality. And there really is now a Slow Bees community recognized by Slow Food International, Slow Food USA. And what does that mean? I mean, that's the first thing everybody asks me. Well, what it means is there's a group of people as delegates and as citizens working together to create a platform for everyone to have an ability to support pollinators. Getting organized is one thing and then facilitating actions is another. I've already had some great conversations with the new uh, director of Slow Food USA, Anna Mulet, about- We love some, Anna. I love Anna. About some future work that we can do with the Slow Bees community. So I feel really backed up to make sure that this community moves forward. But there is a perpetual action. It started this year on May 20th on World Bee Day, and we basically went around and tried to find leaders and encourage citizens to plant something for pollinators. So the hashtag, plant one for pollinators, I wanna see that hashtag grow, um, is really just a call to action for people to take time to find what works in their terroir, in their region, that's a native plant that benefits all pollinators, not just honeybees. Mm -hmm. We have over 20,000 species of pollinators. We talk about honeybees more than any of them. They're extremely important and I am deeply in love with them, but if the other 20,000 are also struggling and suffering and they have a loss of habitat and forage and an increased amount of stressors, the end result really isn't a pretty picture. So first and foremost, the forage environment, we're encouraging and really asking everyone to take action. Mm -hmm. And if they've already taken action to be a beacon, be a, an example and reach out in their local community to try to make it possible for others. We're talking about a global effort, so we're talking about you know, how we recognize our local area and where we live in the US, but think about other places that don't have the same comforts as us or the same abilities to travel or conveniences or technology. Um, so this being a really global 
call to action. We're trying to get people to reach as far as they can mm -hmm. and find out what it is that we could do that would benefit both the pollinators and the people that live in those regions. Do you have a recommendation for resources for folks um, where they can find out what sort of um, plant life is going to support their pollinators in their region? Sure, that's a really good example. And when we first started talking, I mentioned how fortunate I was because our state university has a master gardener program, right. but they've also created a whole body of work to support things that grow in our region, but it's changing. And I think, I mentioned it earlier actually um, on a panel that we did, that I think that warrants some new people involved in agriculture to sort of rewrite these things that were written maybe 40 and 50 years ago. These, these handbooks are outdated. We do have access through the USDA. Um, there is some support there for some agriculture things. Um, so I think on a local level, people could organize decide what it is they want to accomplish. Um, and if it has anything to do with education and learning what to plant in their region, they should reach out to their local and state universities and find about their agriculture programs. Mm. A lot of people have, even through high schools, like 4-H programs. And I'll tell you, they want the education and they want to extend outside the comfort level of um, livestock and food crops. They're very interested in the diversity um, that we have to offer them. So we can go in and sort of start sharing that education create beekeeping programs, create like um, nature scapes instead of lawns and really get some serious actions happening. That's all very exciting um, and congratulations on establishing Slopies. I think that's really, really important work and it ties in with so many uh, facets of our food system. Um, I wanted to uh, come back to your company, Honey, um, Honey, Honey Company, um, and the line of products that you have. So not only are you making honey, but you're also making other items that are tied in with that. So I saw you have um, candles, you have um, products for the body. So tell me a little bit about that and the benefits of using honey and other bee products like wax for um, your home and, and self. I love to talk about honey. Great. <laughs> um, you know, honey's been around just like honeybees for a really long time, and it's yeah. always been reputed as a healthy ingredient for consumption. Um, it contains a plethora of nutrients, enzymes, minerals, everything that it can garner from the plant's healthy relationship with the soil. So if we have uh, some good dirt and a good healthy plant, you can imagine with the right conditions that the plant's going to secrete some nectar and do this thing where it attracts this pollinator that wants to come and drink that nectar and it's just it's its sustenance they live on um, pollinators live on carbohydrates just like we do and proteins and lipids and it's all found in nature which kind of blows my mind so in essence thinking about having um, honey in your diet or other bee products like pollen um, usually it, it, to me it's an enhancement to what we're already doing and it's a very trendy thing right now i might add um, just to talk about popular things, I'm noticing a lot of um, chefs all over the world are really starting to incorporate honey into like mixology for mm -hmm. cocktails um, and actually spend time getting to know the honeys, whether they're extremely sweet or they range into the bitter areas, um, if they have any spice notes or other flavors and how they play well with things that they create. Um, so as a company, to answer your question well, I just want to share with you, when we started beekeeping, we were kind of mesmerized by bees and honey. It was like two things, honey bees, honey. And then we started expanding because we were realizing that in the short period of time that we were beekeepers, honey production had decreased quite drastically. Again, due to many issues, not just pesticides, but a whole stack of things. Yeah. Um, 
So we've started to shift away from honey production um, and doing more creative things with honey. So kind of the less is more because it's a special product. So we do infusions. We play around with um, really uh, quality chocolates. We have a bean to bar chocolate company in our mm. local community that has won all kinds of international awards because not only is the chocolate amazing, but they're getting it from places where um, they're spending time looking for native cacao and things that are, again, not finite. We should cherish it, savor it, little bites, not big gulps. Um, so we've sort of um, expanded our um, offerings to play along nicely with the fact that we don't want to be this giant honey company. We want to sort of learn to do less with honey and more with people, more with education, more to support pollinators. Um, we actually do sell bees um, to a lot of people and that it gets us into the education realm again. So we do a lot of one-on-one -on -one, and we raise queen bees also and that helps us with staying local because a lot of beekeepers will source bees and queens outside their local area. Um, and little studies have already shown that just shipping bees um, is very damaging to them. Um, How does one ship bees? Very carefully, and it doesn't always end well, but there's a way to do it, trust wow. me, because it's, it's really, really... Um, um, what's happening, just to give you a good example, a colony of bees is perpetual. It has this amazing life cycle. Bees of themselves individually only live 30 to 40 days, but the queen bee used to and could live up to about seven years. So her genetics are passed on perpetually through this, what is recognized internationally as um, almost like a mammal. I mean, mm. it has every repro it has reproduction, it has a brain, um, it has communication, it has senses. So it's just this beautiful um, social thing. Um, but now, with the way things are going, over 40 or 50 percent of beekeepers in this country have to replace their colonies every year or their queens due to disease, death, and challenges. That kind of seems like it's making it really challenging for us to work with an insect in its natural way. Um, so we're, we're starting to think more carefully and more mindfully about having a product and changing, shifting our value again from having something tangible that comes from the bees to letting them be free and trying to find other ways to interact. I love it. And I have to say, um, so last night my team and I had dinner at um, Urban Farmer, which is just around the corner from here, and, and the chef, Chris Starkis, is also a farmer, and he raises his own bees. And we awesome. had uh, some really amazing um, honey and in the in the honeycomb um, with our charcuterie and cheese plate, and that they were, he was also doing a the bee pollen and honey cocktail um, special for slow food. So it's really nice to see so many people, even in cities, who are empowered to raise their own bees and and bring them to the public. Um, Urban areas are absolutely um, working diligently to re-identify the way that they um, grow things, rooftop gardens, and um, anything that has anything to do with a tree that can provide a canopy for pollinators for years to mm -hmm. come. So just remember to balance things out. You want short, quick-growing plants, things that are going to grow, um, take longer time but have a lasting effect, and give back to our um, very depleted oxygen layer. <laughs> Um, so where can our listeners find out more information about slow bees and other important resources for making our environment friendlier to our pollinators? Um, do you have a, uh, I know you mentioned the university, um, 
of Florida. Um, but does Slow Bees have a website yet, or how do okay. we how do we find you? So this is something we're working on okay. through Slow Food USA. Slow Food International has a small um, area on their website for pollinators, but it's not updated for Slow Bees yet. But okay. you can still use that as a as a tool. Um, Slow Bees does have a Facebook page. Awesome. We'll have an Instagram page very soon because I made 80 commitments to do it the second I leave here. So I'm going to do it on the plane on the way home. Um, and then there's a Slow Bees community page, which you would join if you are active in working with pollinators and you really have something to contribute or you're willing to do that. Um, and as far as a website goes, um, you know, we we're, as we're organizing, we're going to need assistance. And one of the beautiful things about working with something like Slow Food is asking people for assistance. So if you're a really talented IT person and you want to help pollinators, your skill is invaluable and we could really use You some heard help. it here first. So <laughs> contact HRN or contact Jennifer if you want to help spread the word. Um, well, we're just about out of time, but thank you so much, Jennifer Holmes from Honey Honey Company. It was a pleasure speaking with you and I feel like I learned so much. Thank you. I'm um, so glad to be here. Oh, awesome. Um, so this is Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Hannah Forden. We are here at Slow Food Nations in Denver. Thanks for listening. I want to thank our sponsors um, for making our coverage possible. Um, Hearst Ranch, uh, Big Green Egg, and the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. And thank you so much to Slow Food Nations for having us for the third year in a row. Um, we love... Oh. Something just broke. Um, anyway, we will be back with more interviews, so stay tuned, uh, and thanks for listening.